and welcome to the podcast. This is the Bizarre and Fascinating Details podcast, and I am Sarah, the host, and I've got my co-host, Darcy, who literally (laughs) cracks me up every time because she doesn't quite get the timing, and then I screw her up because I always try to mess her up, and because I'm like, hi. (laughs) And then I pause, and she's like, are you saying hi to me? Yeah. I know sometimes you say it like you're just talking to me, so I'm like, Hi, we've been on the We've call been doing for this for minutes. two years now, three years now, and I, I got to try to catch you at some point, <laughs> yeah, like, and like make you make you laugh. So, um, <laughs> this is the in the news episode. It's kind of a new thing that we're trying to start doing, Woo-hoo. where we do one episode a month where we talk about weird stuff in the news, um, crazy articles, um, updates for stuff that we thought was interesting. But I just saw an article this week about the um, Kristen Smart case. Ooh. And I just kind of wanted to cover off on that really quick. This came out May 12th. Oh, Wednesday, yesterday. May 12th. Yeah, so, um, and I think the reason that I'm bringing this forward is because it kind of highlights, I believe, something that we talked about in the podcast. But um, it basically says, lawsuit Susan Flores' boyfriend helped relocate Kristen Smart's remains. <gasps> oh. So Susan Flores, mother of Paul Flores, and her boyfriend are accused of relocating the remains of missing Cal Poly student Kristen Smart in an amended lawsuit filed by the Smart family. The complaint was updated on May 7th in the San Luis Obispo County Superior Court, and it claims that Susan Flores and Mike McCon excuse me, and Mike McConville assisted Ruben Flores, now 80, in moving Smart's remains following a search of his Arroyo Grande residence in February 2020. I- believe you talked about that in the podcast there was speculation that that she had helped in some way move the remains or knew something about the remains well the cadaver dog went into the neighbor's yard and like hit on the like fence line so like it was pretty clear that there had been remains in her yard at some point so keep in mind this is a lawsuit filed by the smart family this is not yes Paul Flores was last seen with Smart before she went missing May 25th, 1996, which is what we covered on the podcast. Smart was declared legally dead in 2002, and her body has yet to be recovered. Paul and Ruben have been charged with murder and accessory to murder, respectively, to which they have pleaded not guilty. Susan Flores, though, ex-wife of Ruben Flores and current boyfriend McConville, have not been charged. They could not be reached for comment at the time this article came out, but in their lawsuit, Smart's parents, Stan and Denise Smart, allege severe emotional distress spanning 25 years, and they're seeking compensation for damages in an amount to be determined at trial. They're also seeking additional damages to make an example of and to punish the defendants. Mm -hmm. The initial lawsuit was filed April 22nd against Ruben Flores and later amended to include Susan Flores and McConville. On February 5th, 2020, sheriff's officials executed a search warrant at Ruben Flores' home in the 700th block of White Court Arroyo Grande. The lawsuit alleges that four days later, Susan Flores and McConville worked with the ni- worked through the night to remove Smart's body from <gasps> under the lattice enclosure below the deck of his home. And I felt like you talked about that or yes. speculated on that. Oh my More God. than a year later, sheriff's officials executed two more search warrants on March 15th and April 13th when Paul and Ruben Flores were arrested. No new information has been released as a result of the search warrants. In the criminal case, both Paul and Ruben Flores are scheduled to reappear for preliminary hearings May 17th and again June 21st in Superior Court. So Four days I, after the original search warrant. Interesting. Or not, um, maybe not I original, think... but the February 2020 search warrant. What happens in a lot of these cases is they will file the civil case in the attempt to depose the defendants and get them to talk. 
um, oh. in a way that they perhaps haven't or, you know, they, they weren't pursuing any kind of criminal charges, but often case they can depose these witnesses or the defendants and get information out of them to trip them up. And so they'll try to do that as a tactic. Um, and this is interesting that they're doing this now. And I think that that may be what's going on is they're trying to depose Susan. They're trying to depose the boyfriend. They're trying to get some right. additional information for the criminal case. So I have a question, a couple of questions about lawsuits. So the first one, or like the civil lawsuits, the first one, that's public. That's a public document, right? Mm-hmm. So the second one, when they filed their civil lawsuit, did they have to include evidence of why they they're making these claims or is yeah. that something that comes out something the... they have to provide information within it it may not be released immediately it may you can have it sealed oh, okay. um, it just depends on, on on how you go about that okay so conceivably i could go read this lawsuit and see what they like what evidence they are claiming it provided and they could re they could redact information because it's um germane to this the criminal okay. case um just to they want to make sure that it's not going to interfere with the prosecution of justice in the criminal case so i imagine that not everything is going to be made public that makes at sense this okay. point. so wow interesting though um and I had heard another podcast on it. It was like Dateline NBC. And they talked about earrings found in the driveway that were very, very specific and that the yep. authorities did not investigate. And I think you talked about that on the yeah, podcast Yeah, the woman well, that right? moved into Susan Flores' house that rented her house from her found an earring in the driveway. And she gave it to the yeah. police and the police lost it. Yeah. And she it was also the one the that one heard that the was, alarm. Yeah. But it matched the one that was, she was, matched the necklace she was wearing in the missing mm -hmm. um, poster, right? Yep. Interesting stuff. Um, that case is playing out very rapidly now. Yeah, it it's is. coming up quick. So we'll see, you know, what happens. I, I just hope they find that body at some point. I mean, I just feel so bad for that family. I they know. just want to lay their daughter to rest. Yeah. Um, and then speaking of updates, you have another one for the Madeline McCann case, my, right? My Twitter And that machine. was the, the case that we talked about this week. Yes. Um, on the show that we released on Wednesday. Yeah, so I had somebody write us on Twitter, and her name, I'm not going to say her whole name because it's not on there, but her name is Kate, and she is at KFTD83. And she said, I don't know a ton about Madeline McCann, the Madeline McCann case, but I do know that the McCanns rented the car something like a week after their daughter disappeared. They are victims and have been through enough, in my humble opinion. Um, mm -hmm. Oh, we yeah. We agree. Um, I don't necessarily know the thing about the car. I, I haven't looked that up. Um, it sounds vaguely familiar, but like, honestly, I just don't remember, remember, but I think that we, that's something we talked about in our episode was that there is no evidence. I mean, there's just plain no evidence that the parents were involved in this case at all. And they have no. been treated horribly. They have been just crucified in yeah. the media. Yeah. And I don't believe that any of the sources that I used for the show um, talked about timing with the rental car. I don't recall about when you mentioning specifically. that. But... And so I didn't, I, I don't think that I was very specific about that right. because of that. I'm not going to speculate on it if I don't have the evidence to back right. it up. But thank you for providing that, Absolutely. Kate. Thank like you, Kate. It's, I can definitely believe that that would be interesting. Mm -hmm. And then here's the other thing. 
I think it highlights even more. If they didn't rent that car until after Madeline disappeared, then why are they smelling death and decomposition, the dogs in the trunk of that car? Which leads me to believe that maybe the sniffer dogs were either off or something had been biased in some way is kind of my guess because they smelled decomposition everywhere, like everywhere they hit on it. From what I recall from you talking well, about, Well, specifically right? what they said in the, the shows and in the information that I saw, they hit on blood evidence and decomposition evidence, specifically in the trunk of the car and in the closet in the parents, uh, in the apartment, in the bedroom right. that the parents used. Yeah. So interesting. Very interesting. Um, and again, because the parents have been ruled out as suspects, it makes me believe that maybe there was some kind of a mistake or yeah. that the dogs didn't properly find what they should have in the right places or right. or maybe they did find death and decomposition and had nothing to do with Madeline McCann I don't know um, right. it's interesting so yeah. I think that that case is going to continue to play out as well mm-hmm. um, when they start the trial for Christian Rubiner so it should be interesting yeah for sure um, I've got some other wild articles there was one that I want to share with you that I just was completely like floored by All right I have my first person fan of the show request to follow me on Instagram. She follows you and she follows our show. Um, Oh, that's good. I'm private on the, on Instagram. So I messaged her and I was like, thank you so much for the request. Please follow me on Twitter where I'm public. And I gave her my Twitter name. Yeah. I'll be on Twitter. Oh, nice. Awesome. Yay. Um, Thank you for that support. I really appreciate that. I think I know who it is. Uh, is her name like Suzanne or Susan That's, or something? I, I knew as soon as I brought it up, I'm like, I should have brought it up without knowing the name. So let me look. And yes, it is Susie. Yeah. So I followed her back, gave her a little yeah. follow back. Yeah. Um, okay. So this is an interesting article and it's actually um, criminal charges were filed in this one, but lice infestation nearly killed four-year-old Indiana police say her mom is charged. Oh my God. Ew. What? Yeah. Get this. The mom was arrested after her four-year-old daughter's lice infestation was found to be so severe that it nearly killed her. How does that happen? Police in Scottsburg, Indiana were notified by child services about a four-year-old who had been hospitalized due to lice, according to an affidavit. The hospital declared her as a near fatality due to her extremely low hemoglobin levels. Oh, no. So according to the Mayo Clinic, hemoglobin is a protein in your red blood cells that carries oxygen to your body's organs and tissues and transports carbon dioxide from your organs and tissues back to your lungs. So normal levels are about 12 grams per deciliter. But the girls were recorded at about 1.7. So hospital staff say the girl's hemoglobin levels were the lowest they'd ever seen and that she'd already had four blood transfusions. She was so sick that she was unable to walk. They also learned that the girl's six-year-old sister was infested with lice as well. And the infestation was unlike anything they'd ever seen before. School workers told police the six-year-old had lice three days straight in early March before she missed 31 days of school. Presumably they suspended her for that, which they do if you have a severe case because they don't want the other kids to catch it. But her hemoglobin levels were 8.7 grams, which is considered low but not critical, like her younger sister. Mm -hmm. Child services removed the children from their mother, 26-year-old Cheyenne Singh, and placed them in their grandparents' custody. The girl's grandmother told police she asked the mother how the lice got so bad, and the mom responded that she didn't notice that she was just in a fog, according to the affidavit. Mm. 
The girls got lice in November and their mother was just too lazy to help calm them out and it would start all over again, the grandmother said in her testimony. So the mom was arrested and charged with various counts of neglect, including neglect of a dependent resulting in serious bodily injury. Police say Singh failed to manage and seek medical treatment for their daughter's lice infestation. A severe case of head lice can cause anemia, which a Vancouver pediatric doctor studied in a 2019 case involving a four-year-old child. Anemia occurs when an individual lacks enough healthy blood cells to carry adequate oxygen to the body's tissues. An untreated case of head lice led to the death of a 12-year-old Georgia girl last year and the arrest of her parents. The CDC says treatment of head lice requires an over-the-counter and sometimes a prescription-strength medicine. But can you believe that? I'm... Like, that's horrifying. To the point where it's so bad that you literally... Your life is threatened. I, I'm struggling to, like, imagine the severity of that. Like, I'm struggling to comprehend that. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, um, and just to be that lazy. I mean, you know your kid has lice. The school has notified you. You can go get a bottle of medicine and a comb at the store for a couple of bucks, wash the kid's stuff, and call it a day. Like, really? It's gotten to the point where your, your child's life is threatened and you don't care? There's, yeah, there's something else going on there. Yeah. It's interesting. Yeah. Um, that she let it get to that point, but, and that criminal charges were filed for head lice. Gosh. Oof. Bonkers. I did not know that. I don't think I've ever had lice. Have you ever had lice? I did. Um, and it's wild because I got it from my niece. We were, I took a nap with her at my my mom's house, which is her grandma. And my head was just really, really itchy. I was probably like 26, 27. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't figure it out because I'd never had lice before. Mm -hmm. And I was just like, it was really itchy, like back on the base of my scalp. And I was like, what is going on? And I like itched it and went like this. And there were like, (gasps) you could see them. And so I went to the, immediately went to the store and got some comb and a shampoo and combed it. And they were just massive all over the back of my, yeah, it was so gross. It was so unbelievably oh. gross, which my boyfriend at the time, who I stayed over at his house, didn't have it, had no signs of it, no nothing, Weird. which is interesting. I, like I had the worst. It was awful. Like you could see them when you pulled your hand away. And he, I would like to move on nothing, to topic, please. Nothing for him. Like he was just like, wow, this is bizarre. He wasn't even grossed out by it either. He was like... Yeah. Uh, whatever get some shampoo call it a day but yeah wild super super wild in any case it's it's a pretty wild case um next one um this one is pretty wild too and just appalling um black man enslaved by his white boss for five years should be given five hundred and forty six thousand dollars in compensation a court ruled about this So a man with an intellectual disability who was enslaved by a restaurant owner in South Carolina for five years should be awarded about a half a million dollars, the court ruled. Um, In 2019, Bobby Paul Edwards, who owned the J&J Cafeteria in Conway, South Carolina, pleaded guilty to one count of forced labor, coercing an African-American man with an intellectual disability to work intensive hours at a restaurant for no pay and was sentenced to 10 years in prison. As part of the settlement, he also was ordered to pay this poor man, John Christopher Smith, $273,000 in unpaid wages and overtime compensation. Edwards forced Smith to work over 100 hours a week without pay. Can you imagine? He must have been working nonstop, nonstop. 
He would also beat him with belts, fists, pots and pans, etc. the press release said. On April 21st, the Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit ruled that Smith was entitled to double that amount, which would be around half a million dollars. The court said the district court did not properly account for the federal labor laws when it made the decision on compensation. Minimum wages and overtime compensation must be paid on a current basis as work is done, such that an employee receives the prescribed compensation without delay. When an employer fails to pay these amounts, the employer suffers loss. The employee suffers losses, which include the loss of the use of that money during the period of the delay. The court said in its filing, but uh, just unbelievable. Like that is the lowest yeah. of the low to take yeah. somebody with intellectual disabilities and take advantage of them that way and abuse them so horrifically. Do you they know how given him more. he got ha- uh, caught? I'm not sure. Not yeah. sure. Because I saw that headline, but I didn't, I didn't read the story. Yeah. Yeah. That's awful. I thought he should have got more than 10 years, but that was just my personal opinion on that. Um, here's another one. Man was hospitalized after the porta potty he was using at the historic Gettysburg battlefield was crushed by a tree. Sorry, what's happening? <laughs> Man was hospitalized after the porta potty no, he I was heard using you. I just... was crushed by a tree. By a tree. <laughs> Can you okay. imagine? That is literally my worst nightmare. I hate porta potties anyway. I don't want to use them. I don't want to touch them. But if you go inside of one and end up like a tree crashes into it, nope, nope, done. So. First responders rescued a man who became imprisoned inside a porta potty at the site of a historic Gettysburg battlefield in Why Pennsylvania. Why is it funny to me that they use the word imprisoned there? All right. <laughs> On Friday, volunteer firefighters from the Barlow Volunteer Fire Department responded to a 911 call at Little Round Top to find a large tree that had toppled in high winds and had crushed a car and a portable latrine. Volunteers found no one inside the vehicle, but identified that the tree had trapped a man inside the crushed porta potty and proceeded to cut him out. I mean, he must have just smelled horrific. He was taken to the Gettysburg Hospital by ambulance with injuries not considered life-threatening, but he probably was sick as <laughs> from all that nastiness. Um, he, uh, he was taken to Gettysburg Hospital by ambulance with injuries not considered life-threatening and arrived to find one male subject, excuse me, th- this is what the firefighter said, arrived to find one male subject trapped in the porta potty and he was very lucky. They said it was a very large tree and it just missed striking him. It could have been very serious. The firefighters treated the situation as if the man had been trapped in the car. They used a chainsaw to cut away the tree and they cracked the porta potty open with a machine powered saw. This is wow. definitely something I've never seen before. During the Battle of Gettysburg, the little round top was the site of an unsuccessful Confederate assault on Union troops. Yikes. I definitely Wait, do not want to ever. Read the last part get... about the Gettysburg, Gettysburg <laughs> battlefield again. Uh, it was the site of an unsuccessful uh, Confederate campaign. Did that need to be mentioned? What That's article? what it said in the article. <laughs> was that um, information that was to the, use well, they wanted germane people, to... They <laughs> wanted people to know why the site was famous, I guess. The Gettysburg Battle Site, I guess. Okay. Um, another article that I thought was interesting. Um, Child accused of torturing setting dog on fire won't be charged, Mississippi <gasps> police say. So a child accused of torturing a neighborhood dog and setting it on fire in northern Mississippi will not face charges. Tate County Sheriff Brad Lance said the child admitted to intentionally injuring the dog named Buddy. Lance did not release the child's age, but said the individual is too young to be criminally charged under Mississippi law. While this terrible act is a felony crime punishable up to three years in prison under Mississippi law, no person under the age of 12 can be charged with a crime. 
Um, last week, Buddy was found severely burned with an extension cord wrapped around his neck. The <gasps> sheriff's office launched an investigation and a reward was offered. A veterinarian told the news that a Labrador, the Labrador pup or dog appeared to have burns to its eyes in addition to third and fourth degree burns on its face. He also had suffered second degree burns to his ears. But he survived the attack and has been receiving around-the-clock care at the College of Veterinary Medicine at Mississippi State University. Aww, the Tunica Humane Society. Vessel. Yeah, the Tunica Humane Society has also been aiding in Buddy's recovery. In an update Wednesday, the shelter said the pooch is holding strong and doing better than ever expected. He's soaking up the love being shown on him by Mississippi State. My heart is overflowing with gratitude to the thousands of people that have reached out to the Tunica Humane Society over the last few days, sending their love and prayers to Buddy. That will be our glory here. A bright and happy future for Buddy. Okay, so let's talk about this. Let's unwrap this for a second. I don't want to. To me, abuse of an animal is one of the first signs, you know, that serial killers exhibit, right? Yeah. yeah. So if to have somebody do something like that to an animal and not get punished seems ridiculous to me. Well, there should be some kind of... Either he has to spend some time in juvenile hall or whatever. There should be some kind of charges for something like that. It may that just... not necessarily be like punitive, but there may be something that they're not saying about like therapy or psychiatric appointment or something like that. There like needs to be something because somebody that some does way. something that does somebody that does something like that to an animal. That's a sign of something bigger going on. Yes. And I certainly hope that, you know, something happens to provide some help to that child that has done that to an innocent animal. It appears Buddy may still have some vision and damage to his eyes, but that can be surgically corrected. Yeah, just... Oh, is there like a GoFundMe for him? I want to go get this dog. He needs some help. His vital signs are good, but he's at the bottom of a tall mountain to be climbed. Yeah, poor little guy. I have to donate at the Tunica Humane Society. I'm going to post that link. We will post some information on that um, so that people can go help Buddy out. I can't, like, um, I know, like, everybody's, like, it's the whole trope of, like, you care more about animals than humans. And there's some truth to that in the sense that, like, I am more outwardly compassionate toward animals. But that's because they can't speak up for themselves. Like, they can't. Like they're, it's like sure. kids. Like you can't, they can't do anything for themselves. They have to rely on us to protect them. And for an animal to look at you as a protector, and then you do something like this to them, it's just yeah, it's just awful. heartbreaking, awful, awful, awful. Um, not accidental. That kid no. needs help. That yeah. kid needs serious help. There needs to be some kind um, of intervention there, and hopefully there will be because I think you're right. I think that that is a a, a red flag. It may not lead to anything but it's better to cut it off now and to address it now because like you said to not have any kind of redirection of that behavior leads to that behavior continuing and progressing to get worse yeah yeah so i hope this sheds some light on the assistance that this child needs to get his life in order and to help him like become a productive member of society that doesn't do things like that. Right. Right. So anyway, um, next article, um, this one I found a little bit disturbing. Um, Mississippi court upholds, excuse me, this one I definitely found almost as disturbing as the last one that we read, but Mississippi court upholds life sentence for pot possession. Jesus. 
yeah, this precedence that's being set here is not um, a good thing. But Whereas neighboring mm-hmm. Alabama just legalized medical marijuana. But um, the Mississippi Court of Appeals on Tuesday upheld a life sentence for a man convicted of marijuana possession because he had previous convictions that made him a habitual offender. So it's kind of like the three strikes are yeah. out sort of a situation. Alan Russell, 38, was sentenced to life in Forest County in 2009. Yeah. In 2019, after a jury found him guilty of possession of more than 30 grams, which is 1.5 ounces of marijuana, which, I mean, that's not a massive amount. It's not like a brick. So for them to arrest this guy and sentence him to life in prison for that much marijuana seems insane to me. Yeah. But in Mississippi, a person can be sentenced to life without parole after serving at least one year in prison on two separate felonies, one of which must be a violent offense. Russell was convicted of two home burglaries in 2004 and for unlawful possession of a firearm in 2015. This just seems like a miscarriage to me. Like, I just, life in prison for that. So they're saying the home burglaries were the violent offense? Well, by law, burglary is a violent offense in Mississippi, whether or not there is proof that violence occurred. Oh. Hmm. Yeah. That's not the case with Russell. Who was, he was sentenced for home burglary in 2004. The burglary was also considered a violent crime. If there's proof of violence, the law changed in 2014. Oh, um, but okay. it was too late because he'd already been charged. But in yeah. his appeal, Russell argued that a life sentence constitutes a cruel and unusual punishment and is grossly disproportionate, agreed, yeah. uh, to his crime of marijuana possession. The Court of Appeals disagreed in its majority opinion, stating that Russell's life sentence in accordance with Mississippi law fits, right? Russell's not being sentenced solely Which for having the, marijuana... What, but for and that's being a their habitual job offender. is just to say whether or not it agrees with the law, right? Like, they're not saying, like, whether or not it's appropriate. Yes. Um, but several dissenting judges argued that the court can and should make exceptions. Mm. The purpose of criminal justice is to punish those who break the law, deter them from making similar mistakes, and give them the opportunity to become productive members of society. That's clearly not what they're doing here. Mm-hmm. The fact that judges are not routinely given the ability to exercise discretion in sentencing all habitual offenders is completely at odds with this goal. Agreed. Russell was given two concurrent 15-year sentences after pleading guilty to burglary in April 2004. The charging documents in those cases indicate the two burglaries involved the same house and occurred two days apart. Hmm. He, served a, he served a little bit more than eight and a half years and was released from prison in February 2014. He pleaded guilty to possession of a weapon as convicted as a convicted felon in October 2015 and was sentenced to 10 years. It was only required to serve, serve two. What the heck? A convicted felon with a weapon can get 10 years? years. I know, but they can get sentenced to 10 years just for having right. a weapon. Like, even if they don't even use it. He but was yeah, under- but he still only served two, and then he gets a life sentence for a it mar- seems bonkers. Of marijuana. Just bonkers. He was then arrested November 29, 2017 for possessing the marijuana. Under Mississippi law, possession of between 30 and 250 grams which is one ounce, about one ounce to about 8.8 ounces of marijuana can carry a punishment of up to three years in prison and a $3,000 fine or both. Russell was found with five bags of leafy green substances. Two of the bags weighing around 44 grams or 1.55 ounces were tested by a lab and confirmed to be marijuana. Earlier this year, Republican Governor Tate Reeves signed a criminal justice bill into law that expands parole eligibility for some people, but not habitual offenders. So, and I feel as though cases like this just highlight even further how the justice system disproportionately punishes certain groups of people that do not deserve it. It's bonkers because I guarantee you more people of color are impacted by this than white people. Yes. And 
eight ounces is a half a pound. So he had that's, a sixteenth of a pound. That's not and he got very much at all. It just seems so crazy to me. But yeah, I, I don't agree with that at all. Um, and I hope that, I, I mean, that was the appeals court. So maybe it will go to the Supreme Court. I mean, it's entirely conceivable that it could go to the Supreme yeah. Court for a decision in a case like that. It's just, but it, like, that's the thing is like, that basically just depends on whether or not they vote to hear it, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think they hear less than 1% of the cases that come yeah. up in front of it. So, I mean, they got to be, Egregious. it's got to be interesting. Um, but Local I think elections matter, people. Right. But I think given that the seriousness of this and the racial issues in this country right now, I can see them possibly deciding to listen to this case because it, gives, it impacts people of color in a more significant way. I'm not sure that this court will because of the well, way it's made up, but yeah, I, w- we'll I hope it will. But yeah, we'll see. Interesting. I'm going to talk a little bit about a, a case I heard about that happened in Puerto Rico. So, I don't know if you heard about this, but a U.S. tourist was killed in Puerto Rico after no photo warning. Oh. So, this happened in San Juan, Puerto Rico. The burned body of a 24-year-old tourist from Delaware was identified on Tuesday, three days after a friend and he were attacked following a drug purchase in the San Juan district that is popular with visitors. Police commissioners say that a friend and this man had purchased unspecified drugs in the shanty town of La Perla and were trying to take photographs after being warned not to. I mean, were they going to post on social media? Like what? Probably. They're like in their 20s. Probably. Yeah. I don't know. Police say the two were beaten with items, including an exercise weight, a piece of wood, and a deep fryer on Saturday. Jesus. (laughs) Right? I'm sorry, I just didn't laugh at that. That's not funny, but like, really? They were beat with an exercise weight, a piece of wood, and a deep fryer. These what men. I don't know what a deep fryer is. Like, it's like a crock pot looking kind of a thing. Uh... Um, Lote disappeared, and his friend James Jackson managed to flee, but was then hospitalized with the injuries that he sustained. But police say Lote's body was found on Sunday in the town of Viga Baja about 20 miles west of San Juan and was identified by fingerprints. The attackers have not yet been identified. It's rare for tourists to be killed in Puerto Rico, an island of 3.3 million people Mm -hmm. that last saw a record number of killings nearly a decade ago. The last tourist to be reported killed was a 39-year-old man from Denver, Colorado, who police say was thrown from an SUV and run over in San Juan in February 2020. La Perla was once a dangerous slum controlled by rival drug gangs and considered Puerto Rico's biggest distribution point for heroin, but that reputation was largely faded by this time, especially since it has been used as the backdrop for the video of Despacito, a song released in 2017 by Puerto Rican singers Luis Fonsi and Daddy Yankee. Hundreds of tourists have since visited La Perla, where criminal activity was greatly reduced after a 2011 raid by federal agents. So hmm. this is kind of wild. I mean, you're warned not to take pictures. Like, really? You're going to go buy thing, some drugs? Like, and come Why on. take pictures? Like, I, I, don't I, I don't mean to victim blame, and, and I certainly don't want to. I don't understand why taking pictures. I, I don't understand the impulse reasons. to take pictures in the first place. I definitely don't understand it after being warned not to. I can see two reasons. Number one, they want to post on social media and brag about their I mean, you know, obviously experience. That, like, and num- or number two, they want to do some kind of vigilante justice stuff where they, you know, film it and get the guys caught and, and do some kind of I'm a super bad cop kind of a thing. Both of those seem like really bad ideas. Don't yeah. buy. Well, first of all, 
I don't want to say, like, don't buy drugs, first of all, but, like, definitely don't buy drugs from people you don't know in an area you're unfamiliar with. I mean, it just seems really stupid to go to a place like Puerto Rico and start trying to do crazy stuff. Like, really, like, keep it normal. (laughs) Don't buy drugs. (laughs) Just come on. Yeah, like, I, I kind of feel like, it, maybe it's like equivalent of like going to Jamaica and like buying marijuana and being like, I smoke pot in Jamaica, man. I'm so cool. But like, don't do drugs in a place where you don't know. Like you're not yeah. familiar with, with people you don't know. Like don't it buy seems drugs obvious, there. Don't do right? the drugs there. Like it's just a bad idea. It's not safe. Yeah. I, I, I'm not, a, I'm not recommending using drugs. I don't have issue with marijuana. I think it should be legal, but I'm not recommending you do it. You do any drugs. I'm definitely saying don't buy them in places where you're unfamiliar with the people. Yeah. So bye. Um, dangerous economy. Yeah. So here's one that happened in San Diego oh. a couple of weeks ago. That was just horrific. A San Diego woman died after a man jumped off a building and landed on top of her. <gasps> Did you Did hear I about you that? Uh, uh-uh. uh, Oh, I, I know I read it. Yes, that was awful. So this There's woman a died. a gas lamp, right? I think so. Yeah. Um, a woman died after a man who jumped off the ninth floor of a building fell on top of her as she was passing by. So presumably he was trying to commit suicide and he just landed on or her. Or fell, yeah. According to local police, Taylor Colley, 29, was walking on the sidewalk with a friend when an unidentified man jumped from the parking garage on Sunday night, according to NBC mm. San Diego, CBS 8. San Diego County Medical Examiner's Office said the man landed on this woman and she died at the scene. The Jesus. unidentified male was transported to the UCSD Medical Center where his death was later pronounced, so he killed both of them. Wow. Um, the friend of the girl who was walking with her was not injured, but it's hard How to believe something. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to believe something that senseless could take an innocent person's lives, life. Um, Kali was prepared to... Ugh. Kali was preparing to celebrate her 30th birthday with friends. Her boss told the outlet that Kali lived with and had a close relationship with her father. We pray for her and her family. We pray for Mm. the family of the gentleman who jumped along with the gentleman she was with. It's just a triple tragedy. The San Diego Police Department did not immediately respond to insider's request for further comment. But gee, many Christmas, right? Yeah, Yeah, I remember reading that. That was horrible. Can you imagine you're just walking and you're in a beautiful city minding your own business and someone yeah. tries, you know, jumps off a building and lands on top of you and your life is done, over. When I lived in San Diego and worked on Coronado, I went and met um, one of my friends on Coronado, like just to get sushi or whatever. And I'm on the bridge, which is like the second most... Um, it's second locate like second most suicides in yeah. California after the Golden yeah. Gate Bridge, um, and I I'm on the bridge going from San Diego to Coronado, and there's a cop car like flying behind me, coming up really close behind me with his lights on, and I'm like, crap, what did I do? Like I I'm thinking I'm in trouble, like I've done something wrong, and I'm like I can't pull over on the bridge. Also I hate br- I'm terrified of bridges anyway, so I'm like, well I'm gonna have to keep driving to like get to the end of the bridge before I can even pull over. Well, as I'm, like, going through this whole, like, response process of seeing a cop in my rear view with the lights on, he passes me. And then I get to, like, the top of the bridge, and there's a BMW there pulled over to the side of the road with its lights flashing. And people are looking over, the, like, the cops are looking over the side of the bridge. Yeah. 
Nope. And when I got to the bottom of the bridge, like I saw people standing on the side, like looking at the water. And there was like one of those like Navy boats, like looking for people or whatever. It was, that was traumatic. And I didn't even see anybody jump. Like that was, it was just clear. I had just come across that though. And it was like. Just knowing somebody lost their life is horrific. Yeah. So I cannot, I mean, just horrible that, oh, just. How traumatic for the person that was with her, too. Yeah, seriously. Like, life impacted forever. Um, Here's another interesting article that just kind of floored me. I don't know if you saw this one, too. Um, I lost my brother, my twin, myself. NFL player Tariq Cohen's twin electrocuted after allegedly fleeing car crash. So get this. I saw, I did see that about the death. I didn't know how it happened. The 25-year-old twin brother of a Chicago Bears running back was electrocuted after allegedly fleeing the scene of a car wreck in North Carolina this weekend. Tyrell Antar Cohen's body was discovered near a high-voltage electric substation in Raleigh hours after his Jeep was found overturned on an interstate ramp. Cohen is the twin brother of NFL player Tariq Cohen, but on May 8th, troopers responded to reports of a collision on Interstate 540 outside Raleigh shortly before 3 a.m., um, authorities found a 2014 Jeep, which had a, which had struck a concrete basin and flipped over near a highway Whoa. ramp. A witness who reported the wreck told emergency dispatchers the Jeep's occupants may be intoxicated, according mm-hmm. to the dispatcher. Cohen later jumped out of the Jeep and ran into a wooded area. Law enforcement attempted to find the driver of this vehicle in an adjacent area and was unable to locate anyone. Raleigh police later scoured the area with a canine team, but were unable to locate Cohen. A male passenger who was located on scene was transported to a local hospital where he was treated for minor injuries. The pair had left a pub shortly before the accident. On May 9th, a Duke Energy power plant worker found a man's body in a fenced area less than a mile from the scene of the collision, and the man was positively identified as Cohen. Investigators suspect Cohen scaled the substation fence and was electrocuted after touching a live transformer box. Oh my god. He came into contact with live energy within the substation and died of what we believe to be electrocution. He then attempted to try to find a place to hide and climbed on one of the pieces of equipment, which was live and was electrocuted. (sighs) He may have been afraid and climbed the power's substation's fence in an attempt to conceal himself from police and search dogs, say officials. He climbed the fence with barbed wire on the top and may have been aware that the police had canine in the area. He may have tried to find a hiding spot, a higher spot off the ground. The Duke Electric Energy substation powers approximately 30,000 homes in the area. On Monday, Raleigh Police Department spokespeople said that the department regularly uses canine units in searches for missing persons and suspects. We cannot speak as to why Mr. Cohen fled the scene, and we will not speculate. Foul play isn't suspected in this man's death. His cause and manner of death were not immediately available, but it remains unclear what triggered the wreck. A collision report wasn't publicly available as of Monday morning. Toxicology is also pending. Causation factors are still unclear in this investigation. We do not we do not know why he would wreck and flee. He was fleeing on his own accord. If you get in a wreck, you notify law enforcement. You remain on the scene. Those are your legal obligations. Why he fled, we do not know at this point. But holy moly. Wow. I mean... What in the heck? And then to climb into a substation? Like, how could he not understand how dangerous that would be? Is it worth losing your life? I mean, I have to assume he didn't realize that, like, everything in there is, like, live. 
well, maybe he I was intoxicated or under the influence and just didn't, like, I know not to go anywhere near those places. And if it's got yeah, barbed I mean, wire on the top, like, what I know not to go be near thinking? it, but, like, I, if you asked me, I don't think I would be like, oh, yeah, everything in there is, like, live. I don't think I knew that. Just bonkers. Like. It is. And so needless. Like, wow. Yeah. The loss of a life over something like that just seems yeah. incredible. But it also seems strange that, they would use a canine team to try to find this person. I mean, I get it to some degree, but I would probably be scared if they had canine out there searching for me too. Yeah. I mean, it's, they don't use golden retrievers. They typically use like German shepherds and military Badass dogs. dogs that are going to yeah. tear the crap out of your butt if they catch yeah. you. So yeah. I can understand why he might be a little bit concerned and you know, he's a black man, so he probably has concerns anyway. Absolutely. But I mean, wow, just a crazy, crazy, crazy case. And you yeah. know, I feel bad for this man's family and like it just was a needless death. Um, but anyway, really uh, sad. this next case, whew, this is a doozy too. Orlando lawyer and mother left her kids at home to run an SUV into their father's house. So Disbarment has been recommended for an Orlando lawyer who rammed her Land Rover into her ex-husband's house and told his girlfriend, I will kill you, B-I-T-C-H, and spat at police officers. Court oh documents say 40-year-old Francine Bogomol later texted her ex-husband, S-H-I-T, about to get ugly. All this violated several laws, court orders, as well as the standards for behavior by a member of the Florida Bar, of which Bogomol has been a member since 2006. As for the criminal matters, this woman pleaded no contest and was found guilty of one count of aggravated assault with a deadly weapon, one count of assault on a law enforcement officer, one count of domestic violence, battery, two counts of violating a restraining order, and two counts of criminal mischief. She is doing 51 weeks in the Orange County Jail, which will be followed by a year of community control and two years of modified probation. The state Supreme Court suspended an, or suspended her law license, I suspect, and ordered a referee to make a discipline recommendation. So Bogomol didn't get hit with any child neglect charges, though she left her 5-year-old and 11-year-old children at home alone for her middle-of-the-night automotive assault on her ex-husband's home. Wow. Perhaps, <laughs> right? Perhaps proximity prevented prosecution. Her ex-husband and his girlfriend lived only a half a mile from this woman's home. They already had a restraining order against her. As the clock turned to the wee hours of April 30th, 2020, around 3.30 a.m., she smashed her Land Rover into the back of a rented white GMC Yukon in her ex-husband's driveway. That sent the GMC SUV into the garage door, bending it inward about two to three feet. Her ex-husband came out of the house to see his ex-wife hurling objects at his girlfriend's BMW sedan, shattering the windows. He told Orange County Sheriff's deputies after calling 911 that he went outside to get between his girlfriend and his former wife. He admitted responding to her two slaps to his face with a slap to her face. Just before police arrived, the girlfriend said, this woman yelled at her, I will kill you, B-I-T-C-H. Her interaction with the arriving Orange County deputy seemed no less belligerent. After a deputy told her to stop shouting at him while he was talking to her ex-husband, she said, no, F you, and spat at him. Rarely goes well. No. So... Court documents say she not only did she contact her ex-husband, but she left social media messages for his girlfriend, including one that said, next is your mom and pops. I'd back the F off if I were you, just saying you've been warned to stay away from my kids. Whoa. So she's just, she made lots of threats and 
<laughs> followed this woman around, did not follow the restraining order. And this is just bonkers. She had got rearrested November 25th um, after she ran into this guy's house. But I mean, really? Take this woman's law license away and throw her in jail. She does not yeah. deserve to be running around out there causing any more trouble than she's, she already has. And she's has. a prosecutor, right? No, oh, it just said she had a law license. She's been oh. practicing law. She's not a prosecutor. Uh, oh, okay. <laughs> Lock this woman up and throw away the key. Yeah. I'm not sure she's all here with us in Florida. No. Um, we've had an update on that Uber driver case that we talked about a few <gasps> weeks ago. The one in D.C.? Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the 15-year-old girls that was involved pleaded guilty to felony murder for her role in a carjacking that killed 66-year-old Uber driver in Washington, D.C. Claire Huber, a, a spokesperson for D.C. courts, confirmed that the 15-year-old, who was unnamed due to her age, pleaded guilty to one count of felony murder. So she pled guilty. So she knows, yeah. you know, that she did something wrong. All the other charges. Well, it's on video. Yeah. Well, all other charges were dropped. The two teenagers were arrested after allegedly attempting to carjack an Uber Eats vehicle driven by this man, Mohammed Anwar, a 66-year-old immigrant from Pakistan whose family remembered him as a hardworking immigrant who came to the U.S. in 2014 to build a better life for himself and his family. The teens allegedly used a stun gun on the driver, causing him to crash his car. When responders arrived at the scene about a block from Nationals Park, they found the victim suffering from life-threatening injuries. He was pronounced dead at a hospital. The 15-year-old girl's sentencing hearing is scheduled for June 4th. Also, mm -hmm. on Tuesday, a court appearance for the unnamed 13-year-old girl arrested was rescheduled for the end of May. This is just, like, it's interesting yeah. that they did not um, try to use mitigating factors to kind of get themselves out of it or, you know, they... they Flat out, he'll come out and said, we're guilty. Our bad. Which is interesting that they I would wonder, position it in that way. They're minors. I wonder if they have private attorneys or public defenders. Well, they're minors, so they're really not going to spend right. that much time in jail anyway, probably. Um, right. But maybe they just were, like, throwing themselves on the mercy of the court because they're young. And maybe they do have yeah, those mitigating maybe. factors. Interesting. So this one's a warning uh, for those of you out there who might have some elderly parents or who may be at risk for these sorts of scams. But in a latest phone scam, a fake DEA agent tries to steal your money using gift cards. So I guess this is the latest thing now. But authorities are working to crack down on an imposter phone scam in which the caller pretends to be a DEA agent and tries to steal the victim's money, often having them purchase gift cards. Phone scams in general are on the rise, with the number of reported scams nearly mm -hmm. doubling between 2019 and 20. You know, people are stuck at home um, and spending a lot more time on social media and things like that. So I can understand why this would potentially be on the rise. But half a million reports were filed last year alone, with losses totaling over $1 billion from these scam Whoa. artists. ABC News has been tracking new scam alerts sent out by the FBI, IRS, and DEA in cities across the country, including Boston, Houston, San Francisco, and Spokane, Washington, where officials report seeing an increase in scams in which would-be thieves identify themselves as officers. They claim the target has been found to be associated with a crime, and then they demand that they pay them or else face charges. The DEA recently issued a warning about a widespread fraud scheme in which the caller reports to be excuse me, in which the caller purports to be a DEA agent in an attempt to extort money. According to special agents, the scams begins when a would-be thief informs the target 
that their name and social security number are used to rent a vehicle that was subsequently found at the southern border between the U.S. and Mexico, along mm. with evidence of drugs and money laundering. So they're like, okay, they somebody scammed you, took your stuff, and now a car was rented in your name, and it's in Mexico with drugs and whatnot. So the fake DE agent will then convince people to turn over money in a couple different ways. One is to avoid prosecution. That option often includes paying a fine, he said. The other option is to offer the target a way to secure their money using the threat of a frozen bank account. When Terry Tucson's phone rang last July, she says she was told her social security number had been used to rent a car that was found in Texas along the border with drugs in the car. The scammers then told her they were going to freeze her bank accounts unless she withdrew her money and transferred it to gift cards. I was scared because I didn't know if it was actually going to happen or not, said Tucson, who works as a housekeeper at a hospital in Illinois. Mm -hmm. At the time, she had $2,800 in her one account. She says she withdrew all of it following the scammer's direction and went to a drugstore and a grocery store where she purchased eBay and Best Buy gift cards. Oh, no. They told me they'll open up another account for me to put my money into, send a sheriff out to my home, and give, it, give me all that information so I can have my money back. It never happened. ABC News spoke with several other victims of the same scam whose losses ranged from 200 to over $450,000. The DEA directed questions about a possible investigation into the specific scam to the FBI, which declined to comment on the status of an investigation. In an audio recording to the ABC News by the DEA, a scammer is heard trying his best to convince a target he's a legitimate DEA agent when texting a photo of a fake federal badge. The scammer was unaware that his target had conferenced in a real DEA agent who told the scammer what he had been doing was criminal and subject to investigation. The DEA will never, and I want to repeat this, the DEA will never call you and threaten you with arrest unless you make a payment. They just will never do that. And they will never ask you to give them money to keep it secure. So authorities say that scammers use gift cards as a preferred method of payment because they have a very quick turnaround. The scammers have Facebook groups where people will either tie up gift cards or they'll take them as currency. FTC Acting Deputy Director Monica Vaca told ABC News that scammers have financial systems in place to monetize the cards. Sometimes they're selling them on a secondary market and they use them for themselves. Once you've read those numbers on the gift card to the scammer, they'll be able to access those funds. So according to the FTC, gift cards are the most common payment method by those reported being victimized by the DEA scam in the past year with a median loss of $850 per victim. That's incredible. That's very, very high. Um, The FTC said the most popular gift cards requested by scammers include eBay, Google Play, and iTunes. FTC officials say they've been working with retailers to post visible signage on the gift card sections of stores as a part of a public awareness campaign to warn gift card purchasers about possible phone scams. We do hear from consumers in many instances. It is these stores. In these stores, clerks say that they can intervene and stop them from sending money when the targets of the scam go to purchase the cards. Among those participating in the awareness campaign are the world's largest retailer, Walmart. Walmart spokespersons confirmed to ABC that they have warning signs that have been posted in Walmart stores across the U.S. The company also confirmed that store associates have been trained in how to best identify red flags regarding potential fraud scams people the government the irs the police they're not going to call you and demand that you send them a gift card to keep something quiet or to keep you from being arrested they're not going to do that if the police want to talk to you they will either ask you to come down to the station 
or they will come to your house and knock on your door. They're not going to ask for money. If they do, it's a scam. And they definitely don't text. No. So, but nonetheless, it's important to note that there are a lot of people that are falling victim to these yeah, scams absolutely. right now. And well, it's and the scammers are getting more creative. Yeah. average losses and over 1 billion total lost from these phone scammers. It's just what kind of persuasive, persuasive abilities do these people have to be able to talk someone on the other end of a phone into giving them money seems incredible to me. Just incredible. Yeah. But, um, unless you have anything else to add, let's go ahead and wrap the episode up for the night. Uh, I don't answer phone calls that are from numbers I don't know. Yeah. That's generally. Typically. And, you know. If it's important, they'll leave a voicemail. The IRS isn't going to call you either and demand that you pay your taxes no. over the phone. <laughs> they're, no. they're not going to do it. And they're not going to tell you, oh, hey, somebody stole your social security number. You got to pay us. It's yeah, just that's not going to happen. Although I honestly don't think people that are falling victim to that are the sorts of people that are listening to our podcast, but I guess you never know. You never know. Warn your parents, warn your kids, you know, warn the elderly, warn your friends or whatever that these things are going on and tell them what to look for. No one's going to ask for a gift card. It's a scam. Yeah. So, um, social media, what you got? Yeah, we are at the BFD podcast on both Twitter and Instagram. So we post notes and pictures and all that good stuff there. I try to post on Instagram, but I haven't been super good about it lately. Um, Things have been just crazy, bonkers, busy. So I'll try to get back on that. Please rate, review, and subscribe. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please shoot us an email. We definitely love getting emails from you guys or having you be responsive on Twitter or Instagram or whatnot. Um, Talk to us. We, We always like communicating with our listeners. And please join us again next week when we talk more about weird, wacky, and wild cases. Good night, podcast peeps. Stay safe, keep it real, and always live your very best life. Bye. Bye, guys.